0: Consider this for Christmas inconveniences. You get a letter in the mail when you are nine months pregnant from the government that you need to take a 90-mile ride through mountainous terrain so you can return to your hometown and get your registration straightened out. Only you pregnant mothers can really empathize with Mary as the Christmas story begins to unfold. Our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, wants us to think about three questions why the decree why the manger and why shepherds you're nine months pregnant you got to make a 90-mile trek and the whole purpose of this thing is to increase your taxes now how's that for some major inconveniences to make matters even worse you're in the hotbed of zealot activity And the end thing is to resist the government and not to pay any taxes at all. What are you going to do? In fact, I think if I were Mary about that time, I would begin, instead of praying the Magnificat, which starts out, my soul glorifies the Lord. I think I would be starting my prayer out, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Have you ever felt like that? Some major, not minor inconveniences, but some real major inconveniences start to take place in your life. And that's where Luke chapter 2 opens up. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 2. We want to look at verses 1 through 21 today. Why a decree? Why a manger? And why a shepherd? Luke chapter 2 begins with Mary very pregnant. And I'm sure she did not want to take a long walk. And only you wives and mothers can identify with how she must have felt. And all of us can identify as you've already gotten your 1040. I can't believe it, but you arrive home and the very first thing in the year, you get your 1040 in the mail, your first article of good news from the government. Those are the kind of days that it introduces in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. In other words, the entire Roman world needs to be registered. Now, Augustus has a way of exaggerating things. In fact, the text literally reads here that the whole world should be taxed, And that's the way Romans thought. In fact, even looking at this title, Caesar, which means that he's the ruler, that he's the number one honcho, and Augustus. Can you imagine having a name like August? The August one, the preeminent one. The Senate of Rome gave him that title in 27 BC. And that's the title that he took the rest of his life. And that was the title that many of the Roman emperors took. And so we have this prima donna, the ruler of the world, the August one. Out of his flippancy saying, I want to get a reading on what's going on in the world. If I were to go up to Augustus Caesar about that time and ask him, what are you doing I think he would give me a response, first of all, if I could even get into his court. He would be telling me that I'm ruling the world. If I were to ask him, why do you want to get a register? Why do you want to take a poll? Why do you need to increase taxes? He would tell me that I need to get a better handle over my empire. I need to totally control my empire. I think he would be a lot like a lot of the major rulers of our own day. You open up Time Magazine and the whole idea of the article is, that we really need to get our act together or we're not going to have any world. Now that's a legitimate thing to be very concerned about and I think that as believers, especially as believers, we should be concerned about the good creation that God has given to us. But I couldn't help but be amazed at the audacity of mankind thinking that we're the rulers of this planet and that we're the ones who are totally in control of it And we are just sailing through space and we are at the epitome of evolutionary development. And unless we all get together in one mighty world government and get our act together, there's not going to be a world. And there was not one single mention of the fact that there might be an ultimate ruler, an almighty ruler, a ruler that's genuinely in control. Now that discouraged me. I said, man alive, here we're beginning the year and we're once again faced with the idea of man and his arrogance saying that we have control, that we can use our technology. We've messed a lot of things up with technology. We can now reverse it. And I don't mean to put that down the need for ecology. I think it's believers, if ever there was a reason and a cause for people to want to take care of the environment, believers should have that. But time blamed the Bible for a lot of the problem. Uh, misinterpreting Genesis chapter 1 that says that we need to rule over the earth and subdue it. They took that to be a license to demolish the earth. And they never went on to say that the Bible itself talks about the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and blames the problem of mess and pride and arrogance and abuse upon sin. Not upon the fact that man was supposed to subdue and fill the earth. But they were blaming the ecological problems on the Judeo-Christian biblical ethic and saying that we need to find something new and different. And here we have that same old conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth. And man pridefully thinking, I'm in control of everything. And that discourages me. And I think that it can bring discouragement in your heart as a, life, as a believer trying to live your life to glorify Christ. Well, I'm sure that Mary could have felt like that. You know, she just had a visit from an angel several months previously. And the angel said that he was going to give a Savior, that God was going to give a Savior. And they were going to be delivered from this hegemony of human rule. And here she is in the final jaws of her pregnancy when it gets really uncomfortable and the Caesar gives a decree that she needs to go down to Bethlehem with her husband to be taxed. And Caesar thinks he's ruling the world, and if, I'm sure if I were Mary, I would begin to wonder who is ruling the world. Well, notice what Mary and Joseph do. It says in verse 2 that this was the first census that was, took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Mary and Joseph followed with everyone and went down to the town of Bethlehem to register. In verse 2, you notice in the text it's in parenthesis, and there's a little parenthetical uh, teaching we ought to do at this point. There's a major debate because of the problem that Quirinius really didn't become governor of Syria until about 5 or 6 A.D., which raises a problem because Herod died about 4 or 5 B.C., and we know that Jesus was born before the death of Herod the Great. And so it appears like how in the world could there have been a decree and a census taking during the governorship of Quirinius who didn't rule as the governor until 5 or 6 AD when Jesus had to be born about 10 years before that. And so some of our college students that are home, it's very easily that you could be in a college classroom and they could say this is just another minor indication of some of the multitude of errors that are in the biblical text and all the things they told you in Sunday school couldn't possibly be true because here's another error that we know is not historically true. Now, the professor would be raising a very legitimate question, but they probably would not be fair if they presented it like that and said, well, this categorically and objectively proves that the Bible has errors in it and it has some good stories and some good messages but don't build your entire life upon it. Now if they went on to say that they would be very not fair to scholarship because there's some explanations for that. First of all one very simple explanation is that when it says this was the first census that word first could mean before very easily in Greek and what the text might be reading in fact it would be a very legitimate translation is to say that this census was taken before Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Second of all, it's possible that's one very legitimate way to take the text. In other words, that Luke knows that Quirinius became the governor after about 5 or 6 AD. We know that that's true because Josephus also collaborates that. Very possibly he's just saying this census took place before 5 or 6 A.D. when Quirinius became governor. It's also possible that Luke has a lot more insight into what was going on in the first century than we do, because though there was another governor about 4 or 5 B.C., when Jesus probably was born just before Herod died, the real power behind the throne in Syria was a general named Quirinius. And we know that now. We know that Quirinius, after he won some major victories in North Africa, was appointed by Augustus Caesar to go up to Syria, and though he was not appointed the governor until four or 5, 5 or 6 AD, he exercised power at least 10 years before that, and it's very possible that Luke was aware of that, knew that Quirinius was really the one that was responsible. From Luke's perspective, writing many years later, Quirinius was the governor, he had that title, and also it would take about 10 years in order to pull off this kind of numbering. And Josephus mentions that about about 5 or 6 AD, there were tremendous upheavals in Galilee over a census that was taken. In other words, when the census was completed and they actually instituted the taxation, what we have in this early period in Luke chapter 2 is just the beginning of the registration. It's very possible that when Quirinius did become governor, they brought that process to completion and they started collecting the money. And there was a riot, some major riots that Josephus mentions in the area of Galilee and Judea. And very possibly we have Luke, instead of being inaccurate, instead of revealing that he didn't know what was going on, it's very possible as we begin to gather some more facts that he was very knowledgeable of what was happening in the first century. I take the time just to sketch some of those historical details for you because it's easy to twist some of these things and to do injustice to your faith. And all that I can say to you is it's the more that I've studied the Word of God, the more that I've studied the history of the first century, the more amazed I am at the accuracy of the Scripture. But we still have the question, why the decree? Why in the world did Mary have to make this journey? Why in the world did God allow Caesar Augustus to give this decree? Now, I think a lot of you can answer that question. Why in the world did Mary and Joseph have to make a 90-mile walk down to Joseph's hometown? Bethlehem was a small city, a lot like Midlothian when we first came here. And people in Jerusalem would feel a lot like Bethlehem, the way people in Dallas feel about Midlothian. Like, for example, the press coverage we had last year. And a lot of you bristled a little bit when they talked about this small little hick redneck community. And some of you said, man, how can they describe us like that? Well, that gives you an idea how the major city, a big city, or a big sister feels. Well, that'll give you a little handle on how a person living in Jerusalem would feel about Hicksville, the house of bread, about four miles to the south. But there was a very obscure message that could have easily been missed, although the major scholars of Judaism didn't miss it, because when the wise men asked, where is the Messiah to be born, they knew. But Bethlehem was a small, little, rural community. But Micah predicted that the greatest world ruler that ever lived, the Messiah, would be born in that town. Now, it doesn't strike us, you know, when I talk to you like this, I think it's hard to get the emotion of it and what it really meant to get you to feel with Mary. But I want you to see objectively what's happening. Caesar Augustus in Rome comes up with an idea that he needs to tax, and he needs to have an accurate registry to be able to pull that tax off. So he issues a decree. Quirinius, this general from northern Africa, is appointed up in Syria. He gives a decree for the Palestinian area. The decree comes to a small, poor couple in the city of Nazareth, and they're now living in Galilee, which isn't even in Judea, and they've got to make a 90-mile trek down to the city of Bethlehem. They do that, but all of it's working together. Why? Because the ultimate king of kings had predicted 700 years before that that's exactly where his only begotten son would be born. And I want you to remember that, and I want David to remember that when we're tempted to feel like nothing adds up. Everything is a major inconvenience. Nothing is working out. I want you to apply that to some of the things that you're asking God about in your own life. Some of the problems that you feel like, man, the world just isn't what it ought to be. How could this happen? If there was really a God on the throne, he wouldn't make this poor pregnant girl have to walk like that and threaten the life of the baby and all the inconvenience that was involved in that. And what Luke is screaming at us is that it might not look like it. And sometimes it doesn't look like all the pieces of the puzzle fit. But in the long run, the story will all fit together. Now when we're going through some of those major inconveniences, when we're walking in terrible pain, in fear for our baby, walking 90 miles, it's, it's tough. And the emotions are strong. And God does not ask us to deny those emotions. But He also asks us in faith to learn from what He did in the past. And so when I raise the issue, why a decree? Why the emperor's decree? Ultimately, it was to fulfill the prophecy of the true God who alone is on the throne. And though Caesar Augustus never even realized it, he was just a pawn in the hands of the almighty Caesar, the Lord of heaven, who was just fulfilling a minor detail that he mentioned to his servant Micah 700 years before Jesus was born. I also want you to notice a message in verses 4 through 6. And it's very appropriate in light of our 1040 forms. Look what it says in verses 4 through 6. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. To Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David, which is very important legally for Jesus' legal right to the throne of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, who was expecting a child. I want you to notice that Jesus was born into a law-abiding family. We are to be law-abiding citizens. The time that we disobey is when the government asks us to do something which is categorically against the scripture. Thou shalt not murder. It would be one example. And the abortion issue that's going on right now is a very, very delicate one. And we need to be very much in prayer for some of our brothers and sisters who have arrived at the conclusion that they do need to disobey because murder is going on. And that's a very difficult ethical issue. There's others that would feel like that we're on the verge of getting the legislation through legally that will change that whole abortion scene and let's not jeopardize it with civil disobedience. So that's one modern ethical problem which is very very difficult. If we do choose to disobey, we must never do it with arrogance. We must never do it with the attitude, the government has no right to do anything in my life. Because they do. So here we have this push and pull debate, which Christians will have to debate until Jesus comes back. But when it comes to taxation, The Bible and the Lord Jesus is very, very clear. We're going to reaffirm this later on in his life when Peter asked him about this. He was born into a family that paid their taxes. And they were obedient to the government. It was a major inconvenience. And the Roman government was not a just, godly government. It was abusive. It had terrible slavery in it. And yet the Apostle Paul, following the example of his Savior, and the Savior following the example of his stepfather, were obedient to the government. Christianity was not legitimately persecuted in the first century for being rabble-rousers, zealots, trying to tear down the Roman Empire. Now, in the first century, that was a very stringent, difficult debate. In the area where Jesus was brought up, you could have been tremendously ostracized by many of your friends for paying taxes to Caesar. And yet I want you to see that the whole birth narrative, Jesus was born in the right place at the right time because his father was obedient to a legitimate right that the government had. And so we as a church family need to reflect that. And we need to grow together, we need to learn together, but we should not be known as a people that bowed their neck against the authority of the government. And Joseph was willing to submit to the decree of, of Augustus, even though it was very inconvenient. We move into verses 6 and following. We have the baby born. While they were there, the time came from the baby to be born. I want you to notice that the text doesn't say it was that very night. We have the illustration of Mary riding on the donkey that very night. They can't find a place in the inns anywhere. The Holiday Inn is closed. It's all filled up, kind of holiday season, I guess. And they couldn't find a place. That's really not what the text says. It's possible that Joseph went to Nazareth three months before Jesus was born. Maybe he went when Mary started showing to get away from a lot of the gossip that was going on in the city of Nazareth. I don't know. What the text does say is that there was not like a private residency. There was not like a room. It doesn't even use the Greek word that would ordinarily be used for an inn, like where the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, left the traveler that had been beaten up in the inn. Now, an inn in the first century was not a very good place to bring a baby into the world anyway. In fact, a stable would probably offer a lot more privacy and probably a lot more opportunity to be able to have the delicacy of the situation met. So that's one, another one of those minor details. It's possible they were there for about maybe a few months, a couple months, maybe a few weeks. But what they couldn't find was a room in a private residency or possibly in an inn, we can't be sure. So instead they went out to like a cave-like area, very possibly, because often a home in the first century it's kind of like the homes in Europe. Al and Mary Jane have told me about homes they stayed in where right off the house they had all the cattle right there. And that's a very common thing in Europe. It was common in the first century. And often this would be like a cave-like area that they would cover over. The animals would come in in the cool of the winter to be able to be there. They would have shooed the animals out and set up the area. And that's where Jesus was born. It said she wrapped him enclosed and placed them in a manger because there was no room for them. There was no private residency found for them would be a very accurate way of saying that. There's two things that really hit me over this. I think one of the ways to know what Luke is getting at is to study the rest of what Luke says about the life of Christ. In Luke chapter 9, verse 58, Jesus himself says this, The birds of the air have their nests, and the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. A major theme in the book of Luke is that there's no place in society for Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why that's why Luke is emphasizing there's no place found in legitimate society, in the flow of life, for Jesus to be born. And so what is born is is in very ordinary, very poverty-stricken situations. Jesus is born in a stable, and he's placed in a manger. Now, I think this tells us something very important about the first coming of Jesus. We have a tendency to want to lock Jesus up in special areas of life. We want to lock him up with special people. And what the birth narrative is telling us about the purpose of the Son of God coming into the world is that the Jesus that we know in the Scripture, in His first coming, came to identify with ordinary, everyday kind of people. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in His mouth. He wasn't born in Rome. He was born in a podunk city, in a stable, and His very first crib was a manger. Now, that tells us a lot about our Lord. And I think it's something that we easily forget. You know, even watching The Sound of Music again. You have this beautiful cathedral. I mean, no wedding could match the cathedral. I guess it's in Strasbourg. And I was joking. and said, well, here I come now. Because you have this guy up with his long high crown, these beautiful robes and gold everywhere. I said, there I am, the minister. And all the kids were laughing, you know. But what I want you to realize is that human beings have a very strong tendency to do that. We have a tendency to do it even as Protestant believers. Very easily we begin to put Jesus in another category. And then we begin to have the professionals that represent Jesus. And we make the manger scene take place in a beautiful crash during the Christmas holidays that is a very beautiful, elegant, religious thing. Now, what I want to understand is that when it really happened, it wasn't that at all. It was everyday life. It was an everyday night. It was an ordinary time that God breathed into and made it revolutionary. Forever changed the course of the planet. But He did it not with a massive, gigantic ceremony even in the city of Jerusalem, which was just four miles away, in a beautiful Herodian temple, which was one of the wonders of the world. He did it in just a stable, in a manger. And that's what Jesus wants to do with us. Jesus wants to use us, ordinary people. I was talking to a dentist that said, I think, something very significant to me. He said, you know, Dave, He said, you know what I'm trying to figure out? And you know what I think that a pastor teacher needs to help me to do? I need to learn what it means to be a biblical, totally Christ-centered professional man. And that's what I'm working on. I need to find out how to have a consistent quiet time when I've got to also work in dentistry for 40 hours a week. And I've got to learn how to use my practice to be Opportunity to tell others about the Savior that means so much to me. And he said, something that hurts me deeply is often the ministers give me the idea as a dentist that I'm in part-time service and they're in full-time service. He even talked about a, a graduation exercise where the speaker said something like this, you men that have been called to the ministry have the unique privilege of heralding the gospel to all the world. What could higher profession could there possibly be than the opportunity of being the representative of Jesus in a dark and dying world? Well, that stirs a seminary graduating class like crazy. But my dentist friend looked at me and said, that hurt me. I said, "Why did it hurt you?" He said, "Because what right did he have to tell a bunch of future pastors that they were the ones that had the privilege of being servants of the gospel? What am I doing? I resent that. And I said, "Amen, I'm glad." I that was so exciting because he had a hold of this principle. Jesus doesn't have special elite classes of quote-unquote quote, ministers who present the gospel. Men in life will never get the job done that way because most people won't listen to ministers. Most people don't like the religious paraphernalia. You know who they listen to? They listen to dentists. They listen to steel workers. They listen to teachers. They listen... The housewives that are fervently involved in their community, they listen to you. You listen to me a little bit on Sunday morning if you're not a half asleep half the time. When people really listen and they're not falling asleep, it's during your lunch break when you really start sharing your life with them, you really start sharing your heart. And I think this is all wrapped up in Jesus being born in a small town, in a manger, in Bethlehem. Because the Son of God came the first time to identify with just everyday people. He is the servant in His first coming, not the great king. He's a servant. Now, He's going to be the king and He will offer the kingdom, but the dominant thrust of His ministry is rubbing shoulders in the flow of everyday life. And that's why we're going to hear him preaching on the hillsides, why he's going to be visiting in homes, why he's going to be just walking around the country, because he came to invade ordinary people's lives. That's why he chose the shepherds, I think. Jesus didn't appear to Herod. He didn't appear to Caiaphas. He didn't appear to Annas, Caiaphas, his father. He appeared to shepherds. Look what it says in verse 8. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, just an unbelievable passage for the shepherds. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, just camping out. A lot of you guys can identify with that. They were keeping watch over their flocks at night. In other words, they were doing their job. You just have everyday working guys that are doing their job. And then the Lord entered their lives, and their everydayness forever disappeared because they became those eminent shepherds who forever will be known as the common, everyday, ordinary guys that heard the very first heavenly introduction of the Messiah. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. That's always a response to an angelic appearance. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. There's heaven's response to us again. Don't be afraid. And here we have the proclamation of the gospel. I bring you good news I gospel to you, I bring you the good news, and it's great joy. Our message is a gospel message of great joy. And it's going to be for all the people. How many of the people? All the people. Luke begins to open the doors to show that this plan is going to be not just for Jewish people, but it's going to be for all people. Today, in the town of David, reminding us of what we learned in the first point today, that it had to be in Bethlehem. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's divine. And this will be the sign to you, the incredible inconsistency. You will find the Christ, the Lord. The sign will be you will find him as a baby wrapped in the swaddling clothes of a newborn infant. And he'll be lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared. The heavenly army appeared just like in Elisha's time when Elisha asked the Lord to reveal to his servant the armies of the Lord. Remember when Assyria was coming against Elisha and the servant of Elisha was so afraid. And Elisha said, nothing to sweat. Man, we got a great big army here. And Elisha prayed, Lord, just let my servant see a little bit of the heavenly hosts. And the servant's eyes were opened and he saw those invisible armies that were protecting God's servant. The same thing is happening here. Don't think of of everybody in Bethlehem seeing the angels. I have thought that for years. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true of the star either. I don't think hardly anybody saw it except those to whom God appeared. Because that's usually the way God works. You see, God took back the veil between the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom only for those that he was prepared to reveal that that heavenly vision to. And just like the Assyrians didn't see the angels in the account of Elisha, they didn't know the armies were there. But God opened the eyes of, of a man of God and a servant of God to be able to see that. The same thing is taking place here. And then i will explain a lot of things to you because if this was a visible manifestation that all Bethlehem would have seen, then all of Bethlehem would have been there. If God would have put a blazing nuclear explosion above this area, don't you think Jerusalem would have come down to see what was going on? Sure. But what's going on in this account is the fabric between the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom is rent just a little bit. And it's rent just for ordinary people. People that were ready to listen. People that were ready to obey. The angels say this. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly army appeared to the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth to men on whom his favor rests. It's, it's not to men of good will. It's men upon whom God's favor rests. It's the initiative of God, not the good character of men, that wins the heart of God. This is God reaching to man, not man by his good character making itself acceptable to God. So the angels are announcing there's going to be peace to men upon whom God chooses to exercise his favor. When the angel had left them, they had gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You know, I think the shepherds have a message for us that maybe could become kind of a a goal and a purpose for us. It really hit me. These shepherds give us a great example of how we need to respond to the Word of God. Number one, they obeyed. In fact, all the way through the accounts that we've been studying about the birth of Christ, Mary hears the command of God, she makes haste. She says, your servant is willing, and she makes haste. The same idea here. The shepherds hear the message, and they make haste. You know, I think the Lord is still looking for some believers that will make haste to obey. One of the things that struck me in Argentina was the obedience of God's children. They don't have anything. I mean, from a material standpoint, they just live from one meal to the next. They've got about 400% inflation. Money evaporates. It's worse than monopoly money. And yet you gather in in humble homes with brothers and sisters and you teach the gospel to them and you teach the Bible to them and they're hungry to obey that. They're hungry to make it live. And it's exciting to see the Spirit of God moving upon these Spanish-speaking Latins, and they've got a hunger to take the gospel into all of Latin America. Well, I don't think the Holy Spirit that's working in Argentina is not working here. I think He's working right here. I think He's giving us a tremendous challenge. We hear the Word of God taught. Will we make haste to obey? Will you pray for me in that? Let's make haste to obey. It might be very simple, but I think that a lot of the problems that I get into in my own life come because I'm just flat disobedient. Now, I rationalize it. and you know, I come up with all kinds of excuses of why God and His Word could not mean that for me today, because things are different. And I can come up with brilliant ways of getting around it. But deep in my heart, I know what the Word of God says many times, And many times my problem is not I don't understand it. I just don't obey it. And I want you to pray for me in that. And I'll pray for you. I challenge you. Will you make haste to obey? My heart really hurts for some of you. Because I see some of you going through calamities in your life at times. And sometimes you're not calamities like Mary and Joseph were going through because God's working a bigger purpose. Sometimes you're calamities because you're disobedient. And sometimes I face calamities like that because I just disobey. And when I disobey, I get in trouble. And there's bad consequences because God loves me enough to discipline me, to bring me back to obedience. Let's be like the shepherds. We hear the voice of God from heaven. In his holy word, we make haste to obey. The second thing I want you to see these shepherds do, they praise God and they went to the Savior and they worshiped him. I think that's something we as individuals need to grow a great deal in. The reason we're here is not because God has said, well, you need, to, you need to spend some time on the first day of the week, and you need to go to church. I hope that's not really why you came today. My prayer with all my heart is that you would have worshipped for these moments, that it would have been a time in your life where you would have heard a voice from heaven. You would have been able to sing praise to the Lord of heaven. And I want to challenge you, do it as individuals. And I have to confess, I think the holiday season is the worst time. And I'll have to ask the Lord to forgive me because over the last week or so, it's been really hard. Very few times have we just stopped and read some portions of God's Word and prayed and offered praise to God. Don't you find that in the holidays? Because everything is so topsy turvy. You're traveling, everybody's coming and going. But it's those times that we must not forget. I found that early this morning when I had to go back and remember all this study that I did about a week ago, it was like drinking again. It was like eating again for me. And it was like the Lord saying, hey, it's good to see you again. And he started to, to give me that strength which is so vital. The shepherds came to the feet of Jesus, to the baby in the manger, and they worshiped him. That's why we need to come together. We must not just do that as a church once a week or twice a week. We've got to do it as families. We've got to do it as individuals. Don't miss it. Worship and praise the Savior. I'd encourage you sometime just to read the Psalms and offer them as a praise to the Lord. Maybe early in the morning, some of you could take the hymn book, buy a hymn book. My older brother, Don, gave me a little red hymn book, a little bitty thing, and you can just carry it with you, and you can go through those hymns and just sing to yourself, or sing in the car with your family, or sing in your home. Some of the greatest joy of this past week was to gather with Mary's brother's family, with all of his kids. And one of his kids especially, we just sang for about two hours straight. You know, here he is, strap and wrestler. And he tells me about an hour after we did that, he said, You know, Dave, that was really neat. I really enjoyed that. And that's what it means to praise, to stop and sing to the Lord. Do that. I think what will happen, if we'll be hasty to obey, and if we really get a hold of the joy of witness... I think this final thing will just happen. Like the shepherds, we'll be going everywhere sharing what's going on. You see, what real evangelism is, it's not just training you in a technique of how to present the gospel. It's not just communicating the four spiritual laws or the Romans road. It includes that. But it's much more than that. Real evangelism is a dentist, a doctor, a steel worker, a car salesman, a teacher, whatever you are. Just talking about Jesus in the flow of everyday life. Talking about what Jesus is doing for them and what Jesus desires to do for other people. In other words, making it real. That was the genius of these shepherds. They heard the voice from heaven. They made haste to obey. They made haste to obey, to worship they receive the joy and praise that can only fill your heart when you come to the Savior and adore Him. And then out of that fullness, an obedient life, a worshipful life, and out of that obedience, they just heralded the message everywhere. I trust we'll be like those shepherds. Ordinary people, obeying, worshiping, therefore evangelizing.